every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Glad you could join us today. Just remember the battle for your mind is a real thing. And nobody is telling you, you have to think this or I'm going to think less of you. This is more about exposing you to some of the some of the ideas that are probably worth considering. But ultimately, it's up to you as to whether or not you choose to embrace them. Personally, I just want to encourage people to think more clearly and more independently, which is kind of a fancy way of saying less partisan-like when they look at uh, the situation in front of them. And I understand it's really tough to do. Let me give you an example of that. So uh, people who live in California, look, it's a beautiful state. I've visited there enough times that I totally get why people want to live there and live there by the tens of millions. However... California, if you are a person who's very committed to, you know, freedom, is not the kind of state where you would want to hang around long term, given the way that government has uh, encroached and inserted itself into as many areas of life as possible. Now, I happen to like the shooting sports. I've been a hunter and I've been a shooter for, well, most of my adult life. But California, ooh, they do not like their gun owners. Let me give an example of what that looks like. I'm looking at an article here from Reason.com, and this is by Brian Doherty. California will let violence prevention researchers know that you have a gun. In other words, an academic field rife with hostility to private gun ownership now gets to know the address of every California owner of a weapon, a weapon part, or ammo. Now, before we dive into the story, we, we first must backtrack just a little bit. How on earth would the state of California know who owns a weapon? Who owns a weapon part? Who has purchased ammo? And the answer is because they have slowly and methodically enacted laws insisting that if you want to own a gun in this great state, this is the hoop you're going to have to jump through or you're going to need our permission in order to do so. So back when there was a time, you know, 20, 25 years ago, California was saying, we're not going to ban your assault weapons. But they did. In fact, they actually came around and collected them. Why? Because people foolishly registered them. Rather than risk being caught with an unregistered weapon and, you know, that was briefly grandfathered in. Then they told people, you got to move them out of the state. Now they keep track of if you order gun parts. Well, you know, they want to know. You want to buy ammunition? Sorry, you're going to need the state's permission. They want to know. How much ammo have you got? See, this is this is almost unthinkable to me because I've I've been very fortunate to live in relatively free states 
where it's nobody's business. It's nobody's business how many firearms you own. It's nobody's business how much ammunition you own or want to load yourself. I mean, it's it, as long as your behavior is peaceful, as long as you're not harming anybody else, it shouldn't be the government's business. But that's not the case in California. By the way, in the second half of the, of the show, we're going to talk about why, as screwy as I may think California's gun laws are, I'm okay with letting them call their shots with the, with the understanding that people ought to be able to get out of there. If that's a state that's not conducive to freedom, under the concept of federalism, which we're going to talk about in detail, yeah, it would probably be better to just uh, simply beat feet, which it appears an awful lot of Californians are doing right now. I'm just looking around the Intermountain West. I travel a lot between Utah and Idaho. And the amount of Californians that uh, have moved into these areas and continue to flood into these areas... It's uh, it's pretty impressive. Seen a lot of people coming from you know places like uh, Oregon or Washington. Why are they leaving these these high density populations in coastal areas? You ask people, and it's surprising how many will tell you. We just got tired of all the bureaucracy, or tired of of living in you know a utopian place where you know you have no rights. Let's go to the article here. This is from Brian Doherty, again, from Reason.com. He says, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law last week AB 173, which, among other things, gives various academics, most of them very likely to be hostile to private gun ownership, access to all the information California collects about the state's buyers of guns, gun parts, and ammunition. Now, the law says that an assortment of government info about gun possessors, possessors rather, shall be available to researchers affiliated with the California Firearm Violence Research Center at UC Davis. But this is only for academic and policy research purposes. Furthermore, the law says, at the department's discretion, information collected pursuant to this section may be provided to any other nonprofit bona fide research institution accredited by the United States Department of Education or the Council for Higher Education Accreditation for the Study of the Prevention of Violence. Yes, the law also insists that material identifying individuals shall only be provided for research or statistical activities and shall not be transferred, revealed, or used for purposes other than research or statistical activities and reports or publications derived therefrom shall not identify specific individuals. Okay, that's all fine that we got that reassurance, but... Whether or not the resultant research as uh, published names or uh, as, as published names a specific person, a gun owner still would probably not be thrilled that people in the business of coming up with reasons why no one should be allowed to own guns, which is largely true of people in the gun violence research field, can now easily know their name, their address, and all the weapons, parts, and ammo they bought legally. Does that not just sound like a bad bit of information waiting for someone to act on it, a list, if you will, of the problem children. What's more, as the article notes, nothing in the law as written applies any stern level of oversight or punishment if someone should actually misuse that information. Now, California gun owners have long had reason to be suspicious of the amount of information about gun purchases that the state insists on collecting and saving. They have, after all, led to literal attempts at confiscation of once-legal, now-not weapons. 
In 2018, California passed the Consumer Privacy Act, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which guarantees your right to delete your personal information possessed by businesses and make them not sell your personal information. But that right to keep your information to yourself does not apply when the snoops work for government. Roy M. Griffith, Jr., Legislative Director of the California Rifle and Pistol Association, wrote a letter to Gavin Newsom asking him not to sign this law. Griffith pointed out that by his read, AB 173 is in direct violation of the California Constitution, which states in Article 1, Section 1, all people are by nature free and independent and have inalienable rights. Among these are enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining safety, happiness, and privacy. In all, California Constitution names privacy as a fundamental right of all Californians five times. Now, Brian Doherty says, with this law, anyone working in or near any academic violence prevention work who has an axe to grind or who's fallen from grace would know that some named person with X number of guns lives at 123 Boogie Woogie Avenue in Sunnyvale, said Griffith in a phone interview. That, he notes, may not be a situation conducive to security for the citizen at that address. Okay, let me, without trying to create, you know, a sense of, uh, of fear or, you know, trying to panic anybody, the left is pretty good at doxing. Okay, they're real good at it. I think it's reasonable to assume that someone with that kind of information would absolutely make a point of getting it into the hands of people who would be more than happy to uh, use it to cancel or otherwise, you know, victimize that person. Now, the article says Griffith, who used to work in California law enforcement, thinks gun owners names, addresses, numbers of weapons and parts and amount of ammunition are data police should need warrants to obtain in any state that alleges respect to respect privacy. I agree. Unless you have probable cause that this person is actually involved in a crime, you need to back off. It's none of your business. He also says they shouldn't spread it to researchers suspicious of private gun ownership. Just never fails to amaze me the different angles that we end up having to defend our liberties from. But there it is. Now, I want to take a little bit of an interesting twist here and and share with you an article that I came across this morning that uh, was one of the most powerful things I've read in recent days. And, And I start with the understanding a lot of the problems that are confronting us right now seem overwhelming. I talk to people on a daily basis who tell me I'm struggling with my mental health. And if I can be honest, just between you and me, I find myself assessing whether or not, you know, how's my mental health doing? Am I doing okay? Am I still tethered to reality or do I feel myself drifting? Last year and a half has been tough on every single one of us. And there's times where I look at what's happening to my beloved country and I'm just, I'm, I'm weighed down by it. That can lose, cause us to lose perspective. You add some partisanship in and it's really easy to lose perspective. Well, I found a great article by Emina Ilonik. And I, I just love this article because it's a reminder that every one of us who are fighting battles will find that the toughest battle we ever win is the one in which we find the courage to be good, to be a good person. Not because government made us that way, but because we chose to be good. 
And it's that decision to be a good person that has historically led people out of tyranny. The article's titled The Courage to Be Good. And it actually is kind of a fun review of a movie that uh, I first saw, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Powerful show. But Emina Milonic starts with a, a reference to Alexander Solzhenitsyn back in May of 1983. She says, Russian writer and dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn accepted the Templeton Prize. And during his speech, he said the following. Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall a number of over, older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that have befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And he says, if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of this ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Now, although Solzhenitsyn was speaking about Russia, that explanation can be applied to the decades of communist totalitarianism in East Germany. People lived in misery and despair, but mostly in fear from being hunted and interrogated by the East German State Security Service, commonly known as the Stasi. Now, the ministry was known for its interrogation techniques, which primarily included psychological warfare. The interrogator broke down the prisoner, often induced by forced sleep deprivation, used family members as blackmail for information, infinitely repeated the questions until the prisoner would give in and confess to being guilty. And these crimes usually consisted of helping someone cross the border between East and West Germany, or speaking out against ideology, especially in the case of artists and intellectuals, and showing any inclination toward thinking that did not align with the socialist ideology. One of the most beautiful and dramatic explorations of the East German state and its cruelty is illustrated in a 2006 German film, The Lives of Others, directed by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. It focuses on the intertwined lives of a playwright, Jorg Drehmann, an actress, Krista Marie Seeland, and a Stasi officer, Gerd Wiesler. Now, Drehmann writes good plays that align with socialist ideology, and as such... He's not suspected by the state to be a threat of any kind. In fact, judging from his interactions with the state officers who frequent the theater and watch his plays, he may actually even support socialist principles. Now, while Weasler's commanding officer, Anton Grubitz, thinks that Dryman is absolutely safe, Weasler's convinced that Dryman needs to be monitored and so commences the surveillance headed by Weasler. Dryman's apartment and phone have been bugged. Weasler listens into his conversations from the apartment's, apartment building's attic. And the intention is to gather as much information as possible that will implicate Dryman for a very simple reason. It would mean a better career move for both Grubitz and Weasler. Now, in the meantime, one of Dryman's friends and colleagues, Albert Jerska, commits suicide. He has been blacklisted and is unable to direct any plays. And this prompts Dryman to explore the number of suicides that occur in East Germany. And also, why the details of suicides are suppressed by the Stasi. So he arranges to write an expose on the subject for the West German magazine Der Spiegel. But it must be typed on a West German typewriter in order to conceal the source. Dreyman continuously suspects that Christa Maria, with whom he is in a relationship, might be an informant for the Stasi. And this creates an atmosphere of distrust and suspicion, not to mention fear. 
The entire state system is based on fear and suspicion, and as such, the society is unable to flourish in any way. The only people who are in some sense rewarded in this system are those who, though not necessarily believers in it, have mastered all the pretense of it in order to gain a more secure career within the system itself. In other words, those who thrive have to be willing to destroy a person within the system in order to advance themselves. So this means almost everyone is broken. Krista Maria is addicted to pills and she gives in to one of the state ministers and trades information in return to, for pills to fuel her addiction. In her words, she is nothing without the system. Draymond, in the meantime, is losing his sense of intellectual stability, knowing that no amount of words written can explain the cruelty of the system that he's living under. Weasler's also a broken man, but his fragmentation comes from a different place. Unlike Grubitz, who is only concerned with his so-called career, Weasler appears to believe firmly in the principles of the East German state. He thinks that the surveillance is justified because people like Draymond are the enemies of the state. Yet Weasler is a nobody. He lives alone in a cold and impersonal building in an equally cold and impersonal apartment that's bare, monochromatic, and lifeless. He watches TV solely for the state news and is highly orderly and meticulous. He appears to be without family or friends. But something begins to change in him throughout the surveillance. Through the headphones, he hears Draymond and Krista Maria's joys and humor and even lovemaking. He's intruding on the most private and intimate spheres of individual life, and the totalitarian system he represents is the annihilator of being. Anything that is good, true, and beautiful is the enemy of the state. And Weasler knows this ideologically. But as he hears more conversations, he sees more humanity not only in the subjects of surveillance, but also in himself. It's as if Weasler didn't truly exist before. He was a cog in the communist machine, and as he totalized and dehumanized others, he's done the same to himself. He realizes that he has not gained any strength for all of his spying, interrogating, and breaking people. On the contrary, he has grown weaker. As he distantly experiences the joyful and erotic relationality between Draymond and Krista Maria, he begins to awake to a new reality, something that perhaps he never felt to begin with. Now, an ideologue is committed not only to furthering the totalitarian system, but also to the killing of the human spirit. Any joy, happiness, and creativity that a person may exhibit is seen as an absolute anathema to the system and ideology. If a person feels happy, it means that he or she is truly living, and most of all, that he or she is free. And it is precisely this interior freedom that any totalitarian hates. An interior freedom cannot be touched or extinguished by any ideological system. But its existence does raise another question. Can an authoritarian like Weasler be changed? That's the question at the heart of this film. Whose life is he living? He's spying on others, but isn't he also living for the twisted and evil apparatus of the system? He is not in possession of his own interior self, he realizes. But in a moment of experiencing the beauty expressed by someone else, Weasler begins to change. Following the suicide of Albert Jerska, Draymond proceeds to sit at the piano and play a sonata given to him by Jerska. It's called Sonata for a Good Man. And as he hears this, Weasler is overtaken by emotion. He cannot comprehend the nature of what is happening to him, 
but beauty cannot be explained. He is at peace with this, and as the film unfolds, Weasler does become a good man. It's as if the film director wants us to think that beauty will save the world. I love that this article is written so that it doesn't give too much of a spoiler to this movie, but I would recommend, if you have the time and you have the interest, the lives of others would be time well spent. Because it will teach you things on a number of different levels. This was one of the most powerful things about the story, though. A guy who was absolutely invested in the system, totalitarian as they come, becomes a good man. And that matters. In fact, when the wall comes down, when the Berlin Wall comes down, it matters more than you think. The article goes on to talk about in the origins of totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt wrote that ideologies are never interested in the miracle of being. That's because ideologies hate the mystery of being as well. It's the notion of the unknown and something higher than ourselves, meaning God, that frightens an ideologue. So at the beginning of the film, Weasler was deeply envious of Dryman's freedom, Draymond's freedom, rather, that he could not be touched by the system. But as he engaged in more and more surveillance, he came to realize that he too can be free, but only if he is good. Freedom comes from the courage to be, to use Paul Tillich's words, from knowledge that has no ideological, indeed no political system, can offer salvation. Only the strength of the human spirit and God can lead us out of any totalitarian system's cruel labyrinth. Once we recognize that we are human, that the other person who is standing before us is also human, we can truly enter into a real community of authentic individuals and flourish. Again, this is uh, an article by Emina Milonich, writing for AmericanGreatness.com. I'm excited just because it talks about this this movie, which I've not seen in some time, but now I'm I'm determined. I'm I'm going to find it and watch it again, just because I think it has such a great message. But it's it's not so much about hey, you know, this is this is how the Berlin Wall came down. This is how communism collapsed. That's great. But the real message here, and the one that you and I should take courage from, is that you don't have to solve all of the problems that are facing us right now. I look at just the budgetary concerns before the U.S. government, and and it's almost mind-blowing. There was a time when, you know, talking about a billion dollars would raise eyebrows. You're going to spend a billion dollars or more on this? Now we have politicians casually throwing around trillions with a T, placing debts on the backs of generations that have yet to be born. And it doesn't matter if the Republicans have power, even when they do have control particularly over Congress, where all you know spending bills originate. If they really wanted to change it, you'd think they could do so. But now the Democrats are in power, and they're just milking it for all it's worth. They're running as hard as they can to spend as much as possible. That's pretty overwhelming. I don't have my hands on those levers of power. I know what they're moving toward is going to hurt all of us economically. But there's not much that I can do about that. Now, Please don't hear that as so. Therefore, I'm throwing my hands in the air and totally giving up. I'm not. But I am taking the advice that Amina Milonich is is offering here and trying to find the courage to be good. And it's okay if you, you know, if 
if you want to dismiss it or if you go, all right, Brian, let's be good. Let's be good. But there's something that happens when we really focus on being the best possible version of ourselves. And, you know, for some people, that's going to mean, you know, I'm expecting to see you in Sunday school, you know, at noon sharp on Sunday. I don't know if that's if that's what your definition of good is. But I think we can all pretty well understand what it takes to be a good person. The thing that we don't often see, okay, being good is nice. It brings peace of conscience, and there's really something to be said for that. But the added benefit that I think we sometimes tend to overlook is that when people find the courage to be good, to do the right thing, even when everybody else is doing the wrong thing, it provides courage by example for other people to follow. And some people need that little shot of courage. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. And it's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses, as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together, and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. There was a time when Americans could rely on the fourth estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. 
Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. I want to spend some time talking about federalism. And I know that uh, this is kind of a tricky subject, and, and I, I have to confess something. For the longest time, I mean like an embarrassingly, embarrassingly long time, I understood federalism to mean, well, that must pertain to or about the federal government. Who knows? Maybe it applies to the Supremacy Clause, because... I think a lot of people are closet uh, federal supremacists thinking, well, you know, the Constitution puts them above everybody. I want to share a couple of different articles with you, and I want to start with one by Paul Rosenberg, simply titled, We Do Not Have a Federal Government. And this was some of the best clarity that I think I've ever seen on this term. If someone were to come up to you and say, could you describe what uh, constitutes a federal system? I think a lot of people, I know I would have done this up until just a few years ago, would just sit there doing the blank look like, uh, I don't know. So for what it's worth, here's a nice rule of thumb when you're discussing such things. Paul Rosenberg asks, what was federal? And goes on to explain that nearly all of us use the word federal to refer to the United States national government as distinct from state governments. But he says this has been an error on our part because federal was a description, not a name. So it would be fair to use a term like federative in its place because it was describing a type of government, not a particular organization. So, for example, when we say my friend has a fast car, we don't think that fast is the car's brand name. It's merely a description of the car's acceleration and top speed. So federal was not the brand name of the government that James Madison designed. It was a description, like fast. In fact, to to illustrate this, he says, Notice how Madison distinguishes between national and federal, because we have lost this distinction, and it's absolutely crucial. So he turns to Federalist number 39. The proposed Constitution, therefore, is in strictness neither a national nor a federal constitution, but a composition of both. Now, remember, this is Madison speaking. In its foundation, it is federal, not national. In the sources from which the ordinary powers of the government are drawn, it is partly federal and partly national. In the operation of these powers, it is national, not federal. In the extent of them, again, it is federal, not national. And finally, in the authoritative mode of introducing amendments, it is neither wholly federal nor wholly national. Now, that may seem like, okay, you lost me there. That's a lot of back and forth. We ping-ponged back and forth between federal and national. But the point is, 
Madison, six times in this passage alone, distinguishes between federal and national. So there's no question about this. He's referring to two different things. Federal is not the same thing as national. So it's probably in our best interest not to use those terms synonymously. Now, we no longer use these distinctions because the U.S. government has become entirely national. And we don't have anything else to attach the tag federal to. See, you've got to remember, at the founding, as Madison was writing the U.S. Constitution, the meanings of the words he used were these. National powers were those of an independent central government. Federal powers were those that came from the contributions of the states. So if you want to be more precise, federal meant a union based on a treaty. It described the type of association that was being used. And Madison distinguishes between national and federal in exactly the same way that we distinguish between a business and a club. Now, you can see from Madison's words that the structure of the United States government very carefully included federally derived powers. Madison specified them as fundamental components. Now, at its origin, the national government was dependent on the states, not vice versa. And when the states had shifted their positions, the central government, which rested on top of them, had to move along with them. Now, you need to understand, this wasn't a case where the national government was supposed to shift along with the states. There literally was no other possibility. An analogy would be the surface of the ocean moving up and down as a wave passes. And the national government rode on top of the federal arrangement where and when it moved. The national government automatically followed, just like the surface of the ocean moving with a wave. There was nothing else it could do or be. And you have to understand, Madison did this on purpose. It was the central controlling and protecting mechanism of his design. Here's what Thomas Jefferson had to say about the original federal structure of the government in the U.S. In a letter to William Johnson in 1823, Jefferson said, quote, The capital and leading object of the Constitution was to leave the states all authorities which respected their own citizens only, and to transfer to the United States those which respected citizens of foreign or other states, to make us several or separate as to ourselves, but one as to all others. Now, Paul Rosenberg says Jefferson, as usual, understood the essence of the arrangement. Separate among ourselves, but one toward the rest of the world. The outsiders who only saw the surface of the wave, but not the waters underneath. And Jefferson, who was certainly not alone in this, saw the centralizing movement of power from the states to the capital as the greatest threat to the American experiment of liberty. In an 1821 letter he wrote to Nathaniel Macon, he said, Our government is now taking so steady a course as to show by what road it will pass to destruction. That is by consolidation first, and then corruption, its necessary consequence. Never happened, I wish. I wish we could say that, but as usual, Jefferson was right. So the path of destruction that followed as that power was consolidated to the national government and at the cost of the federal arrangement that had been made had a couple of pretty good watershed moments along the way. Now, Paul Rosenberg says the federal structure of the U.S. government has been abolished in steps over time, 
And certainly the largest factors were the confusion, ignorance, apathy, and fear of the populace, which resulted in mute compliance. But among the watershed moments along the way, here are some of the most important of those events. First one, Marbury v. Madison, 1803. Oh, I know, we, we studied it in school. That was part of our social studies, and, and it's a great thing to know. But this is one of the best explanations you're going to hear of Marbury versus Madison. Paul Rosenberg says this most important of Supreme Court rulings resulted from a complex case involving dirty deals, a politically stacked Supreme Court, and the entry of partisan politics into the operation of the American Republic. By the time it was over, the court had ruled against the man who wrote the Constitution, that would be James Madison, and claimed the sole right to interpret the Constitution. Here's how it went. The Federalists, Alexander Hamilton being the driving force, organized into a faction or political party that organized and pooled their power. Facing a loss of control following the election of 1800, they pushed John Adams to appoint a large group of judges and other officials in the lame duck session before he left office. And Adams complied. Now, these appointments were written for five-year terms, long enough for the Federalists to retain control through the next election. Not all of the commissions could be completed before Jefferson was inaugurated. And one of these was slated for delivery to a hardcore Federalist by the name of William Marbury. So when Jefferson took the presidency, Marbury's appointment was still in the Secretary of State's office. And James Madison, who now filled that office, withdrew the appointment for precisely the reasons you'd expect, being based on dirty dealing. And he went about to appoint someone else. Well, Marbury ran to the Supreme Court, which was entirely composed of Federalist appointees, and demanded to be given his office. And in a complex ruling, the court, led by John Marshall, ruled that Madison was wrong to withhold the appointment, but that this didn't matter, since the underlying law from 1789 was unconstitutional. Now, the shock of ruling against the author of the Constitution aside, Marbury brought up the important issue of constitutionality. Namely, who decides? Even if we say there's an argument to be made for the Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution, it is not in the Constitution. So what the court should have said is something like this. Since it has fallen to us to decide such an important matter, we will render our opinion in this case. However, we request of the Congress and the states that they pass an amendment to the Constitution clarifying this issue. Now, Paul Rosenberg goes on to say there's a great deal of confusion related to Marbury versus Madison that's come down to this, or come down to us. The ruling is universally presented in American schools as crucial to the checks and balances of the U.S. government, but this is deeply misleading. Judicial review, meaning the Supremes ruling on the constitutionality, involves one branch of the national government providing a check on the other branches of the national government. But judicial review provided no check whatsoever on the national government as a whole. Can you see the difference? And if you're wondering, well, where did that, that check come from? The answer is it came from the states and their people. Who, if there was a particular piece of federal legislation or policy that they did not wish to abide, they could safely ignore it. Huh, imagine that. Paul Rosenberg says the original design of the republic empowered the states to act as checks on the national government. That was the primary purpose of the federal structure. 
Without it, the national government has no check on its expansion and use of power. Thus, it would seem that the states should be the interpreters of the Constitution. After all, they were the ones who created it, or who sent the delegates who created it, that then called the federal government into existence. It took me a long time to understand that the, the problem with Marbury versus Madison is you had the creature which was created telling its creator, hey, I'll be the one to judge whether this is right or that is right for the other parts of this creation, even though that was never explicitly given to the creature by the creator, meaning the states. I hope that makes sense. Basically, the fox appointed himself to be in charge of security for the hen house. And can, can you see where it has cost us? I mean, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but did we not just see in the last election that when serious questions about the the legality or the the uh, clarity and, and transparency of, of the election were brought to bear and brought to the courts, the Supreme Court's like, no, it's too political. I don't, I don't want to touch it. And so they didn't. They sidestepped it. And they continue to do that with various hot-button political issues. It's, it's not like we should be pushing everything in their direction in the first place, but the Supreme Court in some ways has come to rule the country. And this is why you see such histrionics when somebody like Brett Kavanaugh is nominated to be a Supreme Court justice. Anyway, it brings us to the concept of rules versus justice. And this is one of the last and most important things to mention regarding Marbury versus Madison. And that is the enthronement of rules above reality or legal wordings over justice. Paul Rosenberg says the midnight appointments of the Federalists used rules to manipulate the power structure of the Republic and to secure power by unintended means. Now, James Madison, above all people, understood this. That's why he withdrew Marbury's appointment to conclude the abuse that was being done to his system. Chief Justice Marshall, however, ignored the injustice and parsed words instead. He went on at length over the distinctions of nominate, appoint, and confirm, and the fixing of seals. And then Marshall says this, The people have an original right to establish for their future, their future government, such principles as, in their opinion, shall most conduce to their own happiness. The, frequency, the exercise of this original right, rather, is a very great exertion, nor can it, nor ought it to be frequently repeated. The principles, therefore, so established are deemed fundamental. So what Marshall is actually saying here is that the American people don't want to work so hard defending their rights. So he's giving them an excuse to be lazy. Hey, you can relax. The rules will take over, will take over from here on out. Now, liberty was the primary issue of the founding of the republic. The Constitution was subsidiary to that. It was a tool meaning it was valuable only if helped, it helped to secure liberty. But the reversal of the central order, liberty being made subsidiary to the rules, dethroned liberty. Hamilton, Marshall, and the Federalists were political power seekers. To them, liberty was little more than a word that gave them legitimacy. What they really wanted was power. Madison's design stood in their way. Marbury versus Madison pulled it apart. Then came the 14th Amendment in 1868. This amendment filled a hole in the Constitution by declaring no state could trample an individual's rights, such as the southern states had done by enslaving black people. 
Now, there was an earlier precedent for this, but the amendment was probably necessary. The key section reads, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So essentially, the 14th Amendment made sure that the Bill of Rights applied to everyone, no matter what their state government did. And Paul Rosenberg says, in his opinion, that was a reasonable addition to the Constitution. But he says the problem with the 14th Amendment isn't necessarily in the text itself, but the fact that people took it to imply that the national government has moral superiority, which he says is a highly questionable assumption, and probably even more so in our day. Now, when Americans talk about states' rights, there's this instinctual objection that never fails to grip people. Well, without central government power, slavery would still exist. But Paul Rosenberg says the truth, however, is the opposite. And that truth is this. Every branch of the national government of the United States assisted slavery until 1863. You can verify this for yourself. Just look up the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and the Dred Scott decision. And while the northern states and the national government were supporting slavery, the northern, or, sorry, the southern states and the national government supported slavery, it was the northern states who fought it by nullifying laws supporting slavery. Wisconsin was exemplary in this. The Secession Resolution of Georgia complains specifically about this. For above 20 years, the non-slaveholding states generally have wholly refused to deliver up to us persons charged with crimes affecting slave property. Northern state officials shield and give sanctuary to all criminals who seek to deprive us of this property. Now, the northern states were the anti-slavery heroes, not the central government in Washington. And Paul Rosenberg says, if your history book implies the, the contrary, well, it lies. Then came the 17th Amendment of 1913. Now, the 17th Amendment took the powers of the states and transferred them to Washington by mandating the popular election of senators. See, under the Constitution, prior to the 17th Amendment, senators were elected or in some cases appointed by state legislators. I'm sorry, legislatures. That gave the states massive power in the central government. And it provided a check on the power of the national government. If states were unhappy with the direction of the national government, they could instruct their senators, change that. But with senators being elected directly by the populace, the states were cut out of the equation. And in their place, the political parties gained massive power and nearly all power was consolidated in the city of Washington. Now, the argument in favor of the 17th Amendment was that state houses were corrupt and they acted erratically, often leaving seats vacant for some. Now, it's certainly true that the states were unruly. However, this was not a critical issue. The work of the Senate could continue regardless. Respected politicians, however, did not want to be seen as part of a disorderly body. Now, as for corruptions in the the states, that was often true. But Rosenberg says the implied idea that moral, or that that Washington uh, was pristine and was, remains a bad, bad joke. Even now, he says, the moral superiority of the central government is often assumed probably because many people find comfort trusting in the largest and most powerful thing. So he says, power always corrupts, but a structure featuring small separate pockets of corruption is far less dangerous than one featuring a single large seat of corruption. 
to which all money is gathered. As Thomas Jefferson wrote, it's not by the consolidation or concentration of powers, but by their distribution that good government is affected. Splitting them up, separating them vertically and horizontally. So the government of the United States remains, but it is of a fundamentally different character than the Federal Republic designed by Madison. But Paul Rosenberg says, uh, we all keep saying federal. And not only is this use incorrect, but it's prevented us from recognizing the crucial fact that the American Federal Republic was stolen from our great-grandparents. So this is not just a trivial argument over vocabulary. He says, deceptions and frauds are accomplished over time by changes in the meanings of words. Sometimes it's done purposely, and sometimes it happens because people are more comfortable evading the original meaning. But regardless of how much intent was involved, the meaning of federal changed radically between 1803 and 1917. And this current use of the word conveys a completely different meaning than the original. This change of definition has masked a fundamental turning point in the governance of the American people. What you do about this, or whether you do anything at all, he says, is entirely your choice. I'm merely pointing as best I can to the truth. But he says, I will only add this. If you call yourself an American, be one. That makes sense. By the way, I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Again, one of the best explanations of what a federal system is versus a national system. I talk a lot about the federal government. The federal government this and the federal government that. I really would be better off if I would say the national government. Because that would much more clearly describe who we're dealing with or what we're dealing with. Now, I want to follow up with another article. This is from DividedWeFall.com. And it's a debate on state rights and the relevance of American federalism. And this is from Abigail Hall and Alexander Salter. Both are associate professors of economics, one at the Rubel School of Business at Bellarmine University, uh, one at the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University. And they talk about the breakdown of federalism as it applies to America saying over the last 100 years, we have seen a radical shift in the size and composition of our government. The state-centric, localized governance envisioned by the founders has given way to a nationally dominant behemoth. And as a result, the government is overly centralized and grossly inefficient. But it wasn't always this way. Our Constitution takes the existence of states as a given. They need no legitimation. Instead, the Constitution authorizes the national government to act within a specific and limited domain. It's a beautiful example of political draftsmanship with state governments and the national government consigned to their proper spheres. Each can curb the potential excesses of the other to the benefit of the citizenry. Now, the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution makes it abundantly clear that government activity should be as local as possible. As the framers designed our government, powers not expressly granted to the federal government were assumed to rest with the states. But over time, we've seen disproportionate growth in the national government's prerogatives. And here's a good example of that. From 1900 to 2012, national government expenditures as a share of economic output grew from 2.7% to 24.0%. Over a similar time horizon, state and local government expenditures rose from 9.1% to 5.2% in 
to 14.8%. What a difference. And the authors say this clearly shows the national government eclipsing state and local governments a clear departure from our founding principles. Now, explanations for this lopsided development vary. Some argue that individuals within government, such as politicians and bureaucrats, drive government growth. Others contend that government growth is a result of citizen demand. And still others suggest that crises have played a pivotal role in government ratchets or that new technology causes expansion and centralization. And in reality, it's probably a combination of these things. But whatever the causes, the results are clear. As governance has moved away from our more local entities, the federalist approach to a government focused at a more national level, our government has become unwieldy and ineffective. Now, inefficiency isn't the only downside of overly centralized government. Now, there's also the degeneration of public discourse into vitriol and rancor. Simply put, national politics has become too important. If a political faction loses state or local elections, there are ways to soften the blow. But losing in Washington can be devastating. Since states have become so reliant on the national government, losing the national government often means losing control over state policies as well. When nationalism replaces federalism, politics becomes a winner-take-all tournament. The stakes are just too high. And so they say advocates of national control would argue we have it backward. It's decentralization that's the problem. Why have 50 small-scale solutions which may wastefully duplicate policy efforts instead of a coherent, top-down plan? And this way of thinking is superficially appealing, but it's also fatally flawed. By preserving the autonomy of state governments, federalism ensures that local political units produce the public goods and services that can most benefit their communities. For example, what's appropriate for a state with large cities and high population density might not be for more rural, low-density states. The national government should limit itself to those activities which are truly in the common interest of the whole country. In a diverse nation of 330 million people, the common interests of all citizens will be few and defined. So let those states do their own thing. It's not that big of a deal. Even though some states are going to do like California does to its gun owners, all other states won't. Now, federalism also has some advantages over nationalism. First of all, in a federal system, individuals can self-sort into communities that match their preferences for taxes and public output. Some prefer localities with higher taxes and more generous public services. Others would trade a lower tax bill for fewer public services. By returning power to the states people can choose the kind of governance that that they want. I like that idea. I think that's actually one of the better ideas that, uh, that we should be looking at because we can go where we have a style of governance that works for us. Second, a federalist system has a built-in feedback mechanism for good government, which centralization inadvertently destroys. In a federal regime, citizens can vote with their feet. Households can and do move when local governments become bloated and unresponsive. Witness the exodus from high-tax, high-regulation states like California and New York to freer states like Florida and Texas. Well-governed localities attract citizens and enjoy higher tax revenues. Poorly governed localities drive out their citizens and suffer dwindling revenues. And even this provides valuable information to local political authorities, 
but nationalism destroys that feedback loop because it's so much harder to move to a new country than it is to move to a new state. So the bottom line is, federalism is a crucial part of American constitutional design. America would not be America without it. In fact, much of what's wrong with contemporary politics is caused by nationalism run amok. Federalism helps solve the basic paradox of government, as James Madison wrote it famously in Federalist 51, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Now here, Abigail Hall and Alexander Salter say we want the government to shield citizens from foreign and domestic aggression and produce important collective goods like the interstate highway system. But we don't want government to prey on its citizens, as occurs when special interest groups use the political process to enrich themselves at the expense of taxpayers. So the final benefit of federalism may be the most important. It's how we form a more perfect union and honor democracy. Because the democratic principle isn't just about voting. It's about self-governance in its fullest sense. To govern ourselves, we need continual public accountability. So we also need ongoing policy experimentation. And federalism gives us 50 laboratories of democracy from which we can learn what works and what doesn't. With different states taking different approaches to various issues, we can learn how best to draw the boundaries between public and private. Now, in contrast, nationalism weakens accountability and subjugates the democratic learning process to the whims of the elite. But never let us forget, federalism is in our political DNA. We fail to uphold the American experiment if we allow state governments to devolve into mere administrative conveniences of the national government. By embracing federalism, we can be governed without being ruled. So it's high time we restored state governments to their rightful place in our constitutional order. Kind of a nice way to uh, to take a look at federalism. And I don't know if this is going to help you at all. You know, it's not like, hey, there's a midterm test on this coming up tomorrow. Now you've got the answers. But at the very least, a word that you have heard and perhaps like me have used incorrectly, you now understand better. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network.